I'm Gwyneth Paltrow, and you're listening to The Goop Podcast, made possible by our friends at Rowenta. Yes, I host The Goop Podcast and run the goop.com content team, but I'm first and foremost a mom of two boys. There isn't a ton of room on my plate for such domestic extravagances as, say, ironing, which is where the Rowenta handheld steamer comes in. The 1,600-watt steam flow gets wrinkles out of shirts, dresses, and pants with just a few flicks of the wrist. The steamer works both vertically and horizontally on any fabric, so all I have to do is lay out our clothes on the bed and go to town. You can shop the Rowenta handheld steamer on goop.com. Every Thursday, Goop editors will be sitting down with provocative thinkers, industry disruptors, and culture changers. I'll take turns interviewing barrier-breaking guests as we talk about shifting old paradigms and starting new conversations. Today's guest is Joe Newman, the author of Raising Lions. Joe was a troubled kid, a typical ADHD disobedient type who frustrated all of his teachers and barely eked through school. When he was in his 20s, he realized that he needed to work with problem kids like himself, children who no one else seemed to be able to reach. When I see these behaviors in kids, I don't see disorder. I see potential. I see something that needs to be channels, channeled and directed, and I see obstacles emotionally that need to be removed for that to happen. Today, he teaches his paradigm-shifting and life-changing method to parents, family members, and teachers. I mean, conflict is going to happen throughout your lifetime. That's why, for me, that's the place where the deepest psychological learning self-confidence, independent thinking, resistance to addiction, self-discipline. It's all formed in in those moments. Our chief content officer, Elise Lunin, sat down with Joe. They talked about why he believes things go south and why so many of us were misjudged as kids and continue to misunderstand our own children. When we assume we know what's causing the thing, we rush in there to fix it with the solution. But if we just create some space and sort of a holding place of the boundaries we, we keep, they sort it out. They get to the other end, and they do it quickly. After the conversation, I'll be doing a quick round of Ask Me Anything. If you've got a burning or totally random question you want me to answer, hit us up at Goop on Instagram or Facebook. Now let's get to Elise and Joe Newman. So Joe, as you know, I'm a big fan. You have touched my own life through friends and and the work that you've done with their kids. And I I hope everyone who's listening, regardless of whether you have kids, like we, we all were kids and we all know kids. I think the work that you do is profoundly important. I'm just going to put that out there. I think it's transformative. And I think it essentially establishes a new paradigm uh, in parenting and the way that we intervene on kids who are perceived to be problem children. And I love, we'll, we'll, we'll start to get to all of that, but I just wanted to fan out a tiny bit before we get going because I think it's, I think this sort of intervention, which is actually very simple and very easy to apply, ha- could have profound influence on culture. So putting that out there. So take us back to the beginning. You, you describe yourself as a child who would go to the playground. You were the kid that the other parents would see and pack up their children and leave. Yeah. Like, so, who were you? Who are you? I was adopted about three months old and spent the first couple of months 
you know, I guess in an orphanage. And then, but, you know, I had great parents, uh, really attentive, big fans of Dr. Spock, you know, but they would tell the tales as I grew up of just how difficult it was and how I just had this sort of desire to resist whatever they said. They said black, I said white. And there were charming times when I was engaged and fun, but then, you know, there were the times when I was locking them out of the apartment and, you know, they had to call the fire department to come in through the balcony and, you know, let him in. And I think my life felt very, it was fairly blissful and a lot of, until I went to school. And then everything kind of fell to pieces. Why? Mostly because I, I was not very good at sitting still, was staying at one thing. And if you wanted to me, me to repeat something that was, that I was done with and not interested in, you weren't going to get my attention. So my attention was moving from thing to thing to thing to thing constantly. And if I was engaged, great. You'd see a lot of learning, um, really smart, precocious, you know, child. But if I wasn't engaged, I was looking for something to engage myself. And if that was uh, something that disrupted your class, that's invariably what was going to happen. <laughs> you had ADHD, right? Yeah. Was it diagnosed at that time? Yeah, at the time, the, it was it was called hyperactive, mm-hmm. um, and they actually studied me at the at John Hopkins and National Institutes of Health. Um, my, they asked if I could. Uh, my parents would bring me in because I was like the poster child of extreme ADHD, and they said, you know, if he likes it, we'll try it and we'll bring it back. But I loved it. It was like. You know, for a a seven-year-old, it's like being in a science fiction movie with a lot of adults in lab coats, you know, putting wires to your head and showing you psychedelic movies and asking (laughs) questions and trying to trick you. And it was great. (laughs) (laughs) Essentially, you sort of struggled, and I'm sure you can put better words to it, but just knowing a bit about you, a very kind mother who ensured that you pass school, would let you pace while she transcribed your papers. And then you sort of wandered, right, until you decided that you needed to work with kids. Yeah. I mean, and, you know, there were two parts to it. You know, my father was very, was, was very attentive and well-meaning, but very unconscious about how he uh, – what he was doing. It was a little socially um, – you know, delayed. And uh, he was a like actually a brilliant um, computer scientist, a pioneer in that. But um, but with me, it, it actually that I realized later he had such a powerful effect on my work because there was always a sort of pairing with every boundary, with every limit. There was a pairing of with that of some moralizing. Um, some judgment, maybe even some humiliation. So the boundaries for me became associated with um, with his humiliation. Mm-hmm. And instinctively what I realized is that then I went out into the world and the only place I could find my own dignity was in resistance to all boundaries. Mm-hmm. So we might say we're going to meet to, you know, for lunch or a movie at 4 o'clock. I'd show up at 4.20. Just to spite me. Just to spite time. (laughs) Because dad and time were the same thing. And I had to push against it. Yeah. Do you see what I mean? Yeah, absolutely. So for me, it's super important that when we work with kids, that so much of the battle is about giving them space and dignity Mm -hmm. within a framework. Mm -hmm. Uh, Because I think that emotional uh, response is at the core of a lot of that. Obviously, you wrote a book called Raising Lions and and this idea that 
that children are incredibly precocious, they're incredibly strong-willed, that they know all of this, that by rubbing their faces in it, you're only sort of embattling and embittering them. And by over-explaining and being incredibly logical, you're humiliating them. That idea is so resonant and so culturally, like, what we do, right? Right. Yeah, we we moved away from one kind of coercion, but we embraced another kind of coercion. So we moved away from spanking and belts and threats and screaming, and we moved into moralizing and long discussions about what they should be thinking and the conclusions they should be taking. But that's an invasion of the space in the same way, mm-hmm. and it's, it's a stealing of autonomy. So there's lots of behavior systems that are giving all this information, uh, describing things as if our kids were Pavlovian dogs. And I, you, if you do this, you get this. If you do this, you get this. If you do, and you, they're filling that space and they're stealing the autonomy. So the child has no choice but to do the opposite. And mm-hmm. they wonder why the problem continues, despite the fact that on the surface it would not seem in their self-interest. Right. So can you just to back up for a second? Can you explain what a what a lion is, and can you explain sort of the transition from, you know, as children are two, three, and they they start to understand the limits of their own power or not, like what yeah. what sort of happens. Right. So, um, you know, just developmentally, uh, children go through a stage of sort of this feeling of oneness and perfect bliss, connection with mom and dad. And, and then they start to realize mom and dad are separate. They can make different decisions. And an anxiety comes up, and they have to start to define, where do I end and they begin? And their response with this anxiety is try and control everything. Mm-hmm. So you see the terrible one and a halfs and twos and threes. And, it, and sometimes that goes on for a long time. And this is a stage of omnipotence where they're, they're really fighting for control. And I think people misunderstand that stage and think that the frustration and the, the tantrums have to do with uh, some hypersensitivity that they need everything. Mm-hmm. But the battle's not about the things. It's about expressing their power and experimenting in conflict to figure out who you are, where they end, and then learning to, to sort of to get into a place of, uh, of balance, of mutual recognition. So we really empower our children now in a way we never have in the past. And that ends up with, um, with children who have a really strong sense of themselves, a really strong sense of their right to choose, to offer decisions, to, to come up against you and, con- and contradict you, mm-hmm. and which in and of itself isn't a bad thing. And, and actually, this is important. I don't want – so lions are kids who are just more assertive, uh, more independent in their thinking, are going to draw their own conclusions. But they also may be caught in a cycle of anxiety because they ended up doing that so well they have too much power. Mm-hmm. And so they don't have the, the balance that's come in from mutual recognition, equally feeling the parent's power and their own. Um, and they're just not responding to the old, you know, mm-hmm. uh, methods of coercion, if you will. Yeah, it seems like it just gets off the rails, right? So it's like the misapplication of a lot of talent and a lot of independent thinking and a lot of intelligence and that it just, it's, it starts on the wrong sort of foot. Right. And then it's, it can lead to 
disaster and a lot of horrible consequences. Yeah, and one of the things I noticed right away is that people assume when kids have behavior problems that that's a result of their inability to understand cognitively and emotionally social cues and interactions. Mm-hmm. Most parents will tell you it's the opposite. They, they have a high, very astute level to do those things in moments, but then it seems like they're doing these other things. And if we look more closely at it, we see that, that those kids are acting out of very logical reasons. And um, in a sense, they're cueing us for a more evolved mm-hmm. way of dealing with conflict than most of us are comfortable with. So can you give me an example of that? Yeah, so, um, you know, typically your four-year-old throws their toys across the room and and you're like, uh, and this happens regularly, you say, hey, I need you to stop throwing your toys, you know? Or I see you need to throw something. Here, let me give you a ball. And they do it again. And then maybe you, on one hand, uh, one kind of coercion is, if you do that again, I'm going to give you a timeout. Mm-hmm. Uh, and now, now you need a timeout. That's bad. You're going to break your toys. Mm-hmm. Well, the problem with that is you've set a boundary and a, and a consequence, so they might adapt to that. But they're going to adapt to that, and they're going to have to embrace the negation of themselves during that process because there's a lot of negation in that language. Mm-hmm. Okay. On the other hand, you have um, someone who has a long conversation explaining why it's wrong, and telling and and there, but. But that explanation and that conversation is stimulating and fun. So there's no frustration paired with, with their actions. So their, their dad is going to tell them, look, that was fun. Mom had a talk with me. She's got one opinion. So what? Mm-hmm. And, and they might actually respond to the lecture by showing that they can make the other decision anyway because they're really concerned with autonomy and power. Mm-hmm. So. Neither of those are effective ways of dealing with the behavior. It needs to be, on one level, like simple cause and effect, where kids see that certain things don't get them what they want and other things do, Mm -hmm. Um, and that parents and other adults have needs that have to be met if they want to have their needs met. Mm -hmm. But that has to be paired with giving them space and autonomy. So a break, you're going to say, oh, I need you to take a break. And they're going to say, I don't want to take a break. I'm not going to take it. Well, I can't make you take the break. But if you don't go down and go over to sit down, then it's going to be a longer break. I'll let you decide. No, no, you know, what did I do wrong? I didn't say you did anything wrong. But if you don't take that break in five seconds, it becomes a longer one. Five, four, three, two. So you're moving through a, a cause and effect, almost roadmap. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, you're addressing the real issues of conflict, which are autonomy, judgment, and giving them space to make a decision. Mm-hmm. So you're not moralizing. You're not saying, like, don't hit your brother. It hurts your brother's feelings. They know that inherently. You're saying, hey, bud, why don't you go sit down and allow them to draw those own conclusions and then realize if they want to keep playing and they need to, it's faster and more efficient to just not hit their brother. Yeah, and you can have, I mean, you can have a conversation about it afterwards. But I think in almost all those circumstances, if, when children learn that the first thing you can do is stop yourself and sit for 30 seconds or a minute, just quietly control yourself, that's a life skill that kids need. Mm-hmm. 
You know, it's we have a we have a society that it, that preys on our desire for addiction, mm-hmm. and our children's I mean our um, uh, desire for stimulation, and our children's desire for stimulation. And a lot of our children have trained parents that they need constant stimulation, whether it's constant back and forth answering of questions, whether it's an iPhone when the mom can't talk to them, and technology in the world are just sort of a a supermarket of addictions now. There's all sorts of things waiting. So to be able to stop yourself and to sit without stimulation or a toy or a book quietly and wait in response to not being able to control yourself or uh, testing a boundary with somebody else, that's a great skill, Mm -hmm. you know, even if you're angry. And that's sort of the core of your method, right, is giving parents, teachers, aides, sort of a very, very basic framework to move into so that they're coaching their child and not judging, but also sort of bringing back them back to this place of self-regulation. Did I, is that a correct? Yeah, I think, you know, there's really three levels to what's happening in my method. On one level, it, it will change behavior and it'll change it quickly and it's fairly easy to do. I mean, parents get a simple system where here's a structure of how things move and it's basically how, what's the roadmap you're going to set for your children in conflict. And that'll vary from a two-year-old to a 17-year-old, but it's still a clear map, typically two or three steps. Within that framework, then they're, they're getting sort of scripted things to take that charge out and give developmentally what those people need, mm-hmm. what those children need. So on the surface, that simple process changes behavior. But on the next level, it changes your relationship with your children and makes for like a happier house and reciprocity and just a feeling of mutual respect. And I think on maybe even most important is on the third level, what what children are learning are lifelong life skills. And I I talked about Barry Michaels uh, before we started and that what he teaches adults to do in terms of psychological tools those things are inherent in the process that you're doing with your children. And sometimes I feel like I'm just taking what I learned at 55 with Barry Michaels, <laughs> and I'm helping people do that with their five-year-old so that it becomes an intuitive response and a natural way of being as opposed to something you've got to figure out because your first marriage didn't end so well. <laughs> right. What are we trying to teach our kids? So lifelong skills are first an ability to recognize other people's needs and keep them in balance with your own, okay? We all have worked with people who just understand their own needs and people who don't assert their own needs, and neither one's good. And then that carries over into relationships. So, like, mutual recognition is essential. And it's one of the things where I actually think, like, it's very important for moms to have a life. I've had moms who have kind of given up their life in service of their children because their children are so difficult. Mm-hmm. And it, and then they, the harder they try and the more they give up, the worse it gets. And part of the solution is actually that mom creates her own needs and, and makes that part of the day and makes, you know, dad, if he's there, know that's part of the day and the son know that's part of the day. And so that she's recognized and her needs are important. And that actually is a template for that child growing up and finding a, a woman or, or a man and then who's, who has needs of their own and can be recognized. So intimacy can only be built. It's not from this unconditional love that goes one direction. You know, it's a mutual recognition 
of mm-hmm. back and forth and in its ability to deal with conflict. You know, no relationship that, that two people who don't know how to deal with conflict with each other lasts very long. Mm-hmm. So if you can deal with that conflict in a way that takes out the emotional charge, doesn't make it personal, pulls out the moralizing, sets boundaries and gives per- people the autonomy to do that without a lecture. Mm-hmm. Sounds good to me. I mean, those are skills we all need. And that's what you're doing with your three-year-old or your five-year-old or your 17-year-old if that's when you start. You know, but I, I talked to a family two days ago, had a very, very difficult um, uh, eight-year-old, nine-year-old when we, when we worked together. And it was about two years ago. And he said, my son has internalized the language of the protocol you taught us. And he sets boundaries with other people with that same easy, neutral way that we did with him. And he deals with conflict that way. So the sound of your voice and the charge that you have when you're giving a child a break, for instance, is essential. Because if, 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 if the sound of your voice is charged with anger, they're going to take that, that voice, internalize it, and it'll be the voice that they carry with them when they have to meet a deadline when they're met with frustrations, when there's an obstacle they can't overcome. So what do you want that voice to be? I mean, conflict is going to happen throughout your lifetime. That's why, for me, that's the place where the deepest psychological learning, self-confidence, independent thinking, resistance to addiction, self-discipline, it's all formed in, that, in those moments. Mm-hmm. You know, the people who struggle with my method the, the most are the people who are deeply conflict adverse Mm. and just take let 25 negations and disrespectful moments go by and then try to apply the method on the 26th Mm -hmm. moment you know it's really about changing our being with with our children not being afraid of conflict having our needs and their needs both be honestly part of a discussion that's there all the time one thing that um was really resonant in your book too was this idea and and it seems to be a cycle that I've observed with some friends I can observe it with my own kids sometimes is like the negative attention you know once they when kids get to a point where it's like every interaction it's like negative attention and then they start to identify with the dark side like the what do you call it like the Darth Vader the Darth Vader part Yeah. yeah I think that's really interesting too the idea of like what do you respond to positively what do you ignore and what do you respond to negatively or with some sort of redirection right and see i I would argue you don't need to respond to almost anything negatively Mm -hmm. and that a break in and of itself should be a positive interaction it's like look you know uh, why do i have to take a break a break's not a big deal Mm -hmm. you're growing the muscles of self-control and i need you to use it for a moment Mm -hmm. it's like why do i have to go in and and work out today Because when you work out every day, you become a better athlete. We'll have more of Elise's conversation with Joe Newman in a minute. In the meantime, let's talk about one of our partners. If your house is anything like the Lunan Fismer house, your weekday morning routine looks something like this. Drag yourself out of bed and into the shower, coax the kids out of bed and into their chairs at the kitchen table, make them some breakfast they probably won't eat, pack some lunches, and then pick out the cleanest clothes you can find for them. And then somewhere in there, squeeze in a few minutes to do the same thing for yourself. And throughout this all, 
you're probably thinking about how the getting dressed process could and should be so much simpler. The Rowenta handheld steamer changed all of this for me. The compact, no condensation steamer refreshes clothes in minutes, no ironing boards or complex settings required. And since it works on all fabrics, it's just as useful on nights when I get to hang up my mom hat and put on my silk jumpsuit for a dinner out. I just lay the clothes on my bed or leave them on the hanger and go over it with the 1600 watt steam flow. It works both vertically and horizontally, so no twisting and turning to get the teeniest creases out. It's funny how much easier it is to get dressed in the morning when you're not casting aside favorites because they just happen to be wrinkled. You can get your hands on a Rowenta handheld steamer of your own on goop.com. Okay, let's get back to our chat with Joe Newman. I think, too, that there's something really beautiful about this idea of trusting, like trusting the process, but trusting that your child, like you don't have to teach your child morals necessarily. You might need to like show them good values, but that if left to their own devices in a high, in a structured way that they're going to, they want to, in a way it's like that, that wheel that we talked about that got off track. It like, it wants to come back. Right. There's a, the cycle, it goes off track because our children do things that's problematic. Maybe we lecture them and or respond to it in a way that doesn't work. They find energy in that, in resisting that, and so that the problem gets worse, and then it manifests it as something defining, else. Defining, right? Right, and exactly. So uh, one thing Barry said to me is he said the current definition in the DSM of oppositional defiant disorder is actually some uh, – describing a child who is trying to take back that space that's been filled with all this information, lecture, direction, and right and wrong given to them by adults, and trying to claim that. And they define themselves in opposition of all that is told to them from the outside. And so even if I have a charge, even if I have a judgment that like hitting your sister was a really horrible thing, you know, it's like, take a break. It's not a big deal. We'll talk about it after. That that conversation, which I might require, you know, if it's something violent, is, so what just happened there? Mm-hmm. Hmm. And then what happened? And are you okay with the outcome? Yeah. I'm not. I mean, I have to do this all the time, and, it, and to be honest, it bugs me. So I'm trying to figure out how you're going to come to a different conclusion or what might happen differently. You know, I realize you might have your reasons, and maybe she provoked you, and so I'm not saying, you know, you're bad. I'm just saying... You know, we got to figure something else out. Mm-hmm. Well, that's a, that's a kind of language that creates space. And another way of thinking about that that space where you you don't moralize and you hold back and you don't give the answer or the information that they could come up with is that's high expectation. Mm. Mm. Yeah. That emotionally, empathetically, intellectually, your child can rise. But you need to create space over their head for them to rise. Mm. If you're filling it up with all the next steps they're supposed to do, it's your next step. It's not theirs. And they're going to resent it. Mm-hmm. And they have a choice then. They, they're either going to be motivated by approval, yours, and they'll associate that with love, but at the expense of, of some of their autonomy, and they're going to make that trade, or you're going to get the lions. Mm-hmm. And the lions are making a different trade. I'm going to choose my autonomy and my dignity and I'm okay with your disapproval. Yeah. I I think that 
that whole thing gives me chills too. I, um, this idea that we have all these systems in place on a school level and an aid level, like these, what we think are helpful interventions, like everyone thinks that they're doing the right thing for these kids, right? That they must not know that they, they must not get it that, but then that construct, like if the child doesn't want to please, that's not, if they don't, there's no value for them in that. Right. Or they have no autonomy in that, then it's going to go potentially even more sideways. Yeah. And I think, you know, so I mentioned to you about the study we did last, uh, last year at the University of California, Santa Barbara, where they basically took the, the methodology that I have and they, I have a classroom management protocol. And first we just looked at how the behaviors and the responses were, you know, before for a couple of weeks. And then um, I taught the teachers in two short workshops and then we measured it again. And we did it with all kids. So it was mm-hmm. some of the kids were, you know, it was just a regular elementary school. And it was just interesting to see the change. I mean, the the main thing was what was happening is that when you pull out the, the moralizing, when you create this space for kids and you stop giving them information about their behaviors, one of the big takeaways was that there was a direct correlation with the more you talked about behavior in the classroom, the worse it got. Mm. And the less you identified and talked about it, the better it got. Now, this was part of a a cause and effect break system that also operated at the same time, but there was minimal talking about it unless kids had a request to talk about it after. But 99% of the time, they don't have that request at the end because they've already figured it out or they knew ahead of time. Mm -hmm. So that all raised the the level of expectation. And I think so much of what is happening now, we just need to take a big step back and go, are our assumptions about our children that chances are that they're disordered and neurologically there's some problem and we should act on that first? Or or should we take some make a different assumption that our children are actually smarter than we think? Mm. And how would it look when we parent that way? Or we respond to behavior that way. Because mm. that's very different. And I realize ultimately that, that got, that boil, if you boil down what I do, that's what it gets to. Is that I walk into the room as someone who had to go through a realization that I wasn't broken. I wasn't disordered. I had all kinds of great abilities. Um, and I was hard to wrangle, you know. Okay. And so when I see these behaviors in kids, I don't see disorder. My assumption is I see potential. I see something that needs to be channels, channeled and directed, and I see obstacles emotionally that need to be removed for that to happen. Mm. That's amazing. I'm really inclined to agree with you. Because I, I think, too, like what you, you see a, a child who might be, have been labeled disordered, and then you start to unravel, like, oh, and there's this, this diagnosis for this behavior and this diagnosis for this behavior, and it feels like it's like you know, they're hitting this wall, that wall, this wall, and then suddenly it becomes a tangled mess of like, I don't know what to do with this kid. But if you start to unpeel it, which I know you sort of do behavior by behavior, it starts to become, it it seems like it comes into focus, like a much clearer picture of who this kid really is. I think it's helpful that we just, I think we should assume we know a little less than we do in terms of kids, because 
when we assume we know what they're, what's causing the thing, we rush in there to fix it with the solution. But if we just create some space and sort of a holding place of the boundaries we, we keep and how they move in a predictable way, and we take all that charge out of it, they sort it out. They get to the other end, and they do it quickly. I mean, parents are shocked sometimes how quickly, when they apply the, the protocols that I, I teach them to use, things can change in a, you know, they'll see a big change in a day, you know, and in a month, they're like, wow, things have radically changed, you know, and all they were really doing is they're following a structure to help them interact in a new way and create a lot of space for kids to move and fix the things that were wrong, mm -hmm. and they do. Isn't it funny, too, because it makes so much sense. Like, as an adult, when you function in the world, if you do something that's kind of shitty, right, you know. Right. You don't need to be told, like, right. that was shitty. You probably have already shamed yourself. Right. You're already potentially humiliated. And you don't, like, it's so compounding to be told, like, that that's was shitty. Right. Like, why did you do that? We know. Yeah, that's the thing that, one of the things that emotionally has driven a lot of that, you know, how I work in the classroom is like when when I would when I would call out the answer before I'd raise my hand and the teacher would say Joey I need you to raise your hand and you know I've told you four times today I need you to raise it before you speak I had already given myself a lecture before my hand had gotten over my head I was already here it goes and, I, and so I've got this <laughs> internal conflict and it's like almost like not you too I just heard that you know you know, back off. I'm, I'm trying. And so you can be the coach in that moment. Yeah. You don't have to be the adversary. You don't have to be the judge. Mm -hmm. Now, I, if I have that kid in the classroom, I might still say, Joey, thank you, but I need you to take a break for a minute. Then you can come right back. Don't worry. I'm not mad at you. It's not a big deal. And, and I'm going to test to see if he can kind of pull that in. But I'm not going to attach any judgment to it. I'm not going to repeat the information because he's already doing that. And so I know obviously there's the power struggle, but then how much, how much of the rest of this is just impulsivity and excitement that then sort of goes amok, right? Like how much of it is, is that? Just the, at that age, maybe a four-year-old doesn't have an incredible ability to practice self-control. Right, right. And then it starts to define who they are. And then it sort of takes a precipitous turn. Yeah. So, you know, all of this has to do with, you know, kind of you talk about impulse control. So it's the prefrontal cortex, right, that, you know, that, that is sort of the, the riders and the reins and the saddles for the horses that are all the intellectual abilities, right? So, but that develops depending on how you use it. And if you go culture to culture and you look at children and how, how much impulse control and, you know, um, organization they have in that prefrontal cortex at age five, it, rad it differs radically depending on what that society is requiring of its kids. So they need to practice doing things over and over again. They need to practice self-regulating. I just made a video about what it looks like to try and do breaks with three-and-a-half-year-olds while you're making chocolate chip cookies. Mm. <laughs> okay, Making chocolate chip cookies with three-and-a-half-year-old twins, there's a lot of impulsive behavior. And there's a lot of just uncontrolled behavior. You can do breaks in a kind way that just create a light tension around that and allows the activity to move forward where the child steps out 
and they want to get back into the activity, so they sit quietly for 30 seconds, and then you bring them back in. And then a minute later, they got they're they're you know dumping the chocolate on the floor or sticking it in their ears, and you're like, uh, take a break for a minute and come right back. And slowly, what happens is that same you know that those two toddlers, oh, in the course of a month and two months, actually learn how to regulate and make chocolate shaped chip cookies with you. Mm-hmm. But most people don't go through that process because they don't know how. Right. So the break protocols are also a proactive way to develop self-discipline, develop attention, emotional regulation, attention, you know. Mm -hmm. And I love the fact that your method, too, is so systems-based, that you're not – you don't come in and just focus on the child, but that a lot of it is in observing how the family operates on any given day, what might be happening at school – what's happening with the AIDS. I know for right, the more right. complex, complicated cases or where kids have a diagnosis that you really go in to sort of understand exactly what's happening and then you give everyone the same playbook. And that's what that's you did right. in the in Santa Barbara, right? Was yes. here is a here's the playbook. Do it. Coach it. Right. And that's what changed for the you know the principal was like, you know, after well, two months, she was like, you made my life so much easier. And simply the idea that she's like, because my office used to be filled with problems all day, and now it's not filled with problems. And part of the reason that was simply everyone was doing the same thing. The children adapted to it. The emotional charge disappeared because it just seemed like the way things worked. Kids Mm -hmm. were self-regulating. I actually do very little direct work with children anymore. Mm. I, I like to be there when the parents are doing it, but I want the parents to learn it. I want the teachers to learn it because I'm only there for a short period of time. And children will adapt to the relationship in front of them. Okay? There's plenty of children who behave really well at school and really horribly at home and vice versa. Mm-hmm. Okay? And that's because one system is rewarding one set of things. One system is rewarding the other. So why should I be working with the child? Mm-hmm. They got the ability in one of those circumstances, so they've got it to bring out. Let's just look at what's happening in that system that's bringing out all the stuff we didn't want and shift it. Mm-hmm. It's a lot faster. Yeah. Less variability too, at least until it's like part of like your core, how you operate yourself. Right. Exactly. Cause when there's a structure, everybody calms down. It's like, I know I do this and 15 seconds later I do this and 15 seconds later I do this. And then we only talk about it afterwards and afterwards everyone's a lot calmer. But I always move through it in this way. Children adapt. They start to, to stop, take breaks, sit quietly. It's almost a meditative moment where they learn how to calm themselves without being stimulated. And then if we have a talk if we need it. If we don't need it, we move on with our day. Mm. And everybody calms down. Yeah. It's so, it's so provocatively simple and amazing. And I have to say that through I've observed it secondhand through friends where it has dramatically changed outcomes for their kids, which is all that you can really ask for. Yeah. Well, thank you. You're welcome. (laughs) Thanks so much for joining our conversation with Joe Newman today. You can learn more about his work at raisinglions.com and at goop.com slash the podcast. Now it's ask me anything time. What TV shows are you most looking forward to this fall, asks Rose. Well, Rose, 
I'm very much looking forward to the new season of American Horror Story because my fiance makes it and I always look forward to watching it and then I usually can't get through the whole season because I'm too scared. I'm looking forward to season two of The Sinner. I really loved the first one. I don't know. I need a good new, like, murder documentary series on Netflix. Like, I need a new staircase or making a murderer or something like that. Those are my favorite kind of shows. So if you have suggestions, please let me know. Have a question? Drop us a line at Goop on Instagram or Facebook. That's it for this week's episode of the Goop Podcast. Thanks for tuning in. If you liked what you heard, please rate, review, and share with your friends. To keep up with new episodes, just hit subscribe. And for more info, head over to goop.com slash the podcast. See you next week.